This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In The Books That Made Me, Rose Carlyle, Kyle Mewburn and Nalini Singh read an excerpt from a significant childhood tale that had a shaping effect on their adulthood, hosted by Bridget Shulman and presented by Marks and Worth lawyers and IP specialists. Tina Koto Katoa. Welcome everybody to this session. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our fabulous guests one by one. I'm sure they are recognisable to you all. Um, and there's lots of writerly people in the audience, so that's very good too. Um, and so we're going to talk about some books that made these people, some books that meant a lot to these fabulous writers beside me, and I'm going to introduce them going that way. Okay, so you have Nalini Singh. Nalini Singh has been introduced, we've just said, about 16 times already during this festival, and we've only just begun. <laughs> um, she's probably sick to death of hearing this, but she's written so many novels, she's a publisher's dream. She, we're referring to her as the Nalini Singh Cottage Industry. She, she's got merch, we've just discovered. <laughs> She started life in Fiji. She was raised in New Zealand and Auckland. She has travelled. She's done so many jobs from lawyer through to librarian and a lot in between. But she is inherently a, she's inherently a writer and she started as a teenager. And we're going to hear a little bit about that. Um, she has romance deep in her bones. She's recently turned to crime fiction, and I can heartily recommend that you read that because I am deeply invested in one of the characters from the first crime novel, and I've just begged for a sequel, and I've been turned down. Um, <laughs> we're delighted that she's going to join us for our festival. Um, we hope you'll see connections, maybe we'll see connections now between what she's writing and what she read when she was a kid um, in her formative years. Please welcome Nalini Singh. Rose Carlyle in the middle, has just arrived after a traumatic experience trying to get to Dunedin. Look outside at sunshine, but that was not the case earlier. Um, she appears to have adventure in her bones too. She's a seafarer. She sailed the ocean for extended periods of time. And you will have figured that out if you've read her hugely successful novel, The Girl in the Mirror. Um, she has been a lawyer and now she writes full-time the dream of so many people in the room. Um, she appears to be, to have suddenly become successful with writing, but my stalking on the internet proves that you've actually been writing for a really long time. Oh, does it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deep hole, that internet thing. I know things you don't know about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's a special day for us. Is, is today your birthday or is it tomorrow? Tomorrow. Tomorrow is her birthday and she's spending Mother's Day away from her family. So we're really delighted that she's given up that time to be with us. And um, so happy birthday for tomorrow and happy Mother's Day for tomorrow. But, you know, um, and so when you get home, I hope there's a massive celebration waiting for you. Please welcome Rose. 
this reprobate is an old friend of mine. <laughs> this is Kyle Mewburn, and it gives me a great pre- deal of pleasure to introduce Kyle to you. Kyle is on the front page of the mix today in the ODT. <laughs> Lifetime. Cover cover girl again. (laughs) Um, Her brand new biography, which we're all waiting with bated breath for, is is due next week. And, um, And Kyle spends quite a lot of her time visiting schools and talking about children's writing and, and just basically having a jolly time with kids out in the world. Um, she's built her own house. She's been the chair of the Society of Authors. She's published all over the world and is generally one of the most wonderful people to spend time with. Um, so let's do some of that now. You can ask Maureen a few reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome Kyle Mewburn. <laughs> Right, so we are going to do uh, a little bit of reading from the books of choice from these authors. Um, they have some rather tatty, some of them, books and some beautifully pristine copies of books that <laughs> that they have maybe, felt. Maybe new copies to replace the old oh. copies. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> and each of them is going to read for a little while and answer some questions about the books. And then we're going to have a, we're going to have a chat amongst each other about the reading and about the books. And then we'll open it up for lots and lots of questions that I know you'll all have. So um, Nalini's going to go first. And go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I am going to read from Dragon's Dawn by Anne McCaffrey. So I'm sure there are some McCaffrey fans in the audience. I see some nodding heads. Um, I found uh, Ms. McCaffrey's books as a young teenager and I just fell in love. Um, so this book just represents her entire oeuvre. Basically, I read everything. And the reason this book is so pristine is because when I was first reading them, I was reading them out of the library. And when I got older, um, I started to collect, you know, all the editions of the books. So I may have more than one copy. We won't talk about how many. Um, but there's, there's such joy in these books, and I still reread them to this day. They hold up really well, whether you're a young teen or uh, an adult. Um, and if you don't know about these books, they're like science fiction. It's, a, it's about an agrarian colony on a, on a new planet. They're cut off from Earth, and they find out that this really peaceful colony that's supposed to just be, you know, farmers and stuff. There's a thing that falls from the sky they're called thread. It's caused by a um, celestial phenomenon that comes around every few hundred years. And what it does, it digs into the soil, it digs into people, it basically kills everything in its path. And they're trapped on this planet with no weapons, nothing to defend themselves against this thing that's falling from the sky, destroying all their crops. And the planet has these little... Um, little creatures they call fire dragons, and they're they're just little tiny, happy creatures that follow people around and breathe little puffs of fire. They're not dangerous <laughs> at all. Um, and so, but then they get to thinking, and they're like, they have scientists because again they're an agrarian colony. They said, can we engineer them to be bigger, and then then they can fire the threat and kill it as it's falling from the sky. And the other thing about these little dragons is that they can teleport. So they can escape that stuff as it's falling, appear somewhere else, fire it, and gone. Okay, so that's a little bit of background so you understand the little excerpt I'm going to read. 
The dragons leapt upward from the ledge before the cave, giving themselves enough airway to take the first full sweep. Over the last few weeks, dragonbacks had strengthened and muscled up. They had managed flights of several hours' duration. Riders, even Nora Sedgeby, were improving. Long discussions with Drake Bernot, Thea Force, and some of the other pilots who had both fighter experience in the old Nazi war and plenty of fighting thread had improved the dragon riders' basic understanding of the skills needed, and practice had encouraged them. Even the fire lizards were more useful, Sean thought, as the two fears erupted into the air about them, bugling a morning welcome in their high, sweet voices. Now, if the dragons could only prove capable of that, Sean thought enviously, but how do you teach a dragon to do something you do not yourself understand? The dragons got smarter every day. They learned quickly, but it was impossible to explain telekinesis to them or ask them to teleport the way the fire lizards did. Kitty Ping called it an instinctive action. Nowhere in the program, which he had memorized, did he find any words of wisdom on how to instruct a dragon to use his innate instinct. And it wasn't the sort of exercise one did on a spontaneous basis. First, they would try to chew firestone and make flame. They knew where the fire lizards got the phosphine-bearing rock. This area was littered with the stuff. Sean had even watched the Browns and Sorka's Duke selecting the pieces to chew and the careful way they concentrated while they chewed. The fire lizards would produce flame on demand, so Sean felt easy about teaching the dragons that, but going between one place and another, that was scary. So I'm going to give you a little piece from later on in the book. And Karanath is the name of his dragon. All right, Karanath, Sean said, thinking ahead with relief to the last loads at landing. Let's get back to the tower as fast as we can and get this over with. He raised his arm and dropped it. The next instant, he and Karanath were involved, enveloped in a blackness that was so absolute, Sean was certain his heart had stopped. I will not panic, he said fiercely, pushing the memory of Marco and Duluth to the back of his mind. His heart raced now, and he was aware of the stunning cold of this black nothingness. I am here. Where are we, Karanath? But Sean already knew they were between. He focused intense thoughts on their destination, remembering the curious ash-filtered light around the landing, the shape of the meteorology tower, the flatness of the grid beyond it, the bundles waiting from them there. We are at the tower, Karanath said, somewhat surprised, and in that instant they were, several hundred yards above it, and Sean cried out aloud with relief. Shards, what have I done, he shrieked, wide-eyed with a, second, with a sudden terror. Where are the ca- others, Karanath? Speak to them. They're coming, Karanath replied with the utmost calm and confidence. Before Sean's unbelieving eyes, his wings suddenly materialized behind them, still in formation. Friendly dragons. Yes. And, and I'll just say one of the reasons that these books have really, really struck with me is I didn't understand it at the time, but she taught me um, how to build worlds by building a world that's so immersive. It felt like it was wrapped around me, that I could step onto a spaceship and go to this planet and it would exist as a whole thing. 
And I can see that looking back now, but at the time I was just in the world. That's the sign of fantastic fantasy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 You're in the world. You can't see any faults in the world. It's seamless. Yeah. It's seamless. That's there. Mm. Very yeah. real, very natural. Yeah. 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 Have you, when you read now, do you read fantasy? Do you read lots of fantasy? I still do, yeah. Fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I'm a voracious reader, so I read everything. I'm the kid who read the back of the cereal box, you know, mm. on the table. Yeah. 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 Do you read fantasy? I read science fiction. Right. I mean, I've read the big ones like um, Lord of the Rings, obviously. Really? Um, <laughs> Get out. <laughs> I not only have read them, I have Life read them aloud, short. including singing all the songs, which I think makes me unique among human beings. I used to keep notebooks. My children wouldn't let me skip the songs. No. I sung the songs with made-up tunes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, but I'm not a huge fantasy reader, to be honest. More science fiction. Yeah. Science fiction, okay. Yeah, me too. I used to read um, lots of science fiction. Frederick Brown, Theodore Sturgeon, you know, Once um, um, Stranger in a Strange Land, that type of... Mm. Yeah. took me a while to read Dune. It's like the Lord of the Rings. You just get involved in this stuff and think, why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's the immersive world that gets me, the name yeah. of the wind and yeah. all that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm just no, that's like, really good, mm. that one, yeah. I was going to say Anne McCaffrey herself, she gets classified as fantasy a lot. Yes. But she herself has said, she, well, she's passed away now, but she said she's a science fiction writer. And when you read these books, you'll notice there's science in it. You know, mm. it's the science, it's the creation of the dragons. It's not magic. Um, it's all based in science. So, yeah. Science fantasy. Science fiction. Yeah, science, yeah, science, science fantasy. It's a meld, yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, she, she wrote so much. Yes. For so long. And you stuck with her all the whole her way. Lo- the whole way. I was devastated when she passed away <laughs> because it was like, wow. I mean, her son has carried on. The series, but obviously a writer's voice is very unique to them. And so I know there's no more Anne McCaffrey books coming, even though I can still go back to the world through Todd McCaffrey's books. It's, you know, I miss her voice because she is, she is the one that, I, that made me fall in love mm. with the voice. So I just reread a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Have you found someone who's similar? No. I think that's one of the things with her is she is unique to mm. me. Um, as a reader, and I think a lot of people who are fans of hers would agree. She is, she's just created something so immersive. I mean, this is decades and decades and decades old, and there's still new people mm. finding the books. And, and just in the green room, I, I found a fellow fan mm. <laughs> in our festival director. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're very popular in school libraries, I would say. And you know, if all you have to do is buy one with a new co- with a new cover, yeah. And you're and you've yes. got a whole new. It's like David Eddings and all those other mm. ones. They're 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 perennial. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Is that your hope for your books? That, that <laughs> <laughs> they get new covers. They get new covers and a whole new readership every time. Every time. Well, I mean, my books are set in like two. One series is set in like 2083, so it's fine. They're not going to age until at least 2083. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. Do you have any questions for Nalini? I've actually never read them, so. No. Oh, you should. Have to add them to should the I list. really? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm like the 
evangelist for Anne McCaffrey books. Um, no, they're brilliant. And there's, di- there's different starting points. So this one, you know, it's the dawn of the dragons, dragons dawn, but it's actually not the first book written. It, it was, it's a prequel that was written after several of the other books came out. So you can read them in different orders. And what's your favorite book? Which one would you recommend? It's like, for me, it's become so much a whole thing mm-hmm. that I can't separate out which book is my favorite because it's, it's a seamless continu- continuation for me from one to the other, yeah. So Which is what you do with your writing. Oh, yeah. To be in any way compared to Anne McCaffrey, <laughs> it's like, yes, <laughs> my day is made. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Okay, Rose. Well, I'm going to talk very briefly about two books because what I really wanted to capture was just how wide and random my reading was as a child of the 80s. And I feel that that's something that, that is actually maybe getting a little bit lost with people worrying too much about what their children are reading. So I have brought um, the books I read when I was a kid. I don't know where they came from. I guess it was school libraries or I just sort of picked them up and, and read them. This one I read when I was seven, and I'm not going to read to you from it because I think I would cry (laughs) Um, because it was so powerful. I can remember that I was at our family batch at Port Waikato, and it was a beautiful day outside, and eventually my next-door neighbour came in and demanded to know why I wasn't running around with all the other kids as we normally did from dawn till dusk. And I was going, because I'm reading a book. Um, And then she came back and found me crying. And I remember her making fun of me. And I was just going, it's because the book's sad. That's why... Why don't you understand that? And I, I was confused by her not understanding that I could be crying about an imaginary character in a book. But this book is extremely powerful. Um, so um, I Am David, it's um, by Anne Holm. And it was actually written years before I was born and my children have all wept over it as well in a, in a good way. Um, and I didn't really understand it at the time. I just knew that David had been born and grown up in some kind of a camp that had really difficult conditions in it. And then a man who he doesn't really trust tells him in the very first chapter how to escape the camp and says that the uh, electric fence will be turned off for one minute. And just right from that start, I was absolutely hooked. Was the man going to betray him? Was he going to get out? The guards would shoot him if they saw him escaping. And it just carries on like that the whole way through the book. But it's also, as well as terrifying, it's also got some very beautiful um, moments and some very heart-rending moments. And there's just a lot of love in the book and a lot of joy. So I can't read from it (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I feel like it, it... kind of was what made me a reader. I mean, I'd been reading for years, but it just pulled me into a world like no other book. And I almost feel like that one book that you remember being your first book that does that is always going to be special. So um, that's at one end of the spectrum. I'm not going to read from it because all I can say is if you have a child in your life who hasn't read it, go buy it for them and read it to them or give it to them. Um, but my other book is at the complete opposite of the spectrum. Okay. So my mum had no problem with me reading To Kill a Mockingbird when I was eight. Right? She didn't stop me from reading anything except this book. She said, why are you reading that trash? And um, I've brought a couple more in the series. 
So the known as Sweet Valley High, the first one's called Double Love. And, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the content that my mother objected to because flowers in the attic was not a problem. But, oh. um, but it was, she felt that the style was, um, was beneath me and I should be moving on to better things by the time I was reading these. And I mean, the thing is, though, when I look at these, I think they were incredibly successful. I've met so many people who absolutely adored them. And in the space of one small volume, every character has a plot and an arc. So the, the dad seems to be having an affair. The brother is having a forbidden love with a girl from the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> and the school is about to lose their sports field. And the best friend has a terrible secret. But all of this is background to the main story, which is uh, two beautiful, identical twins. One's nice and one's naughty. Oh. And um, they go about trying to, one's trying to steal the other's boyfriend, and they both take turns impersonating each other in the course of the book. So one, one for nefarious purposes, and then the other to get revenge. And I thought, yeah, this is kind of like... It's almost like my novel is, is um, a dark adult fanfic. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I thought it was quite impressive that a book with so many plot arcs in it nonetheless devotes about the first 10 pages to describing the girl's appearance. So um, I'm not going to read you all of that because it goes on and on, but I do like how it starts. Okay, so chapter one. Oh, Lizzie, do you believe how absolutely horrendous I look today? Jessica Wakefield groaned as she stepped in front of her sister, Elizabeth, and stared at herself in the bedroom mirror. I mean, that's creepy. It's like the girl in the mirror. <laughs> I'm seeing something here. Yeah. I'm so gross. Just look at me. Everything is totally wrong. To begin with, I'm disgustingly fat. With that, she spun around to show off a stunning figure without an extra ounce visible anywhere. She moaned again, this time holding out one perfectly shaped bronze leg. Isn't that the grossest? I swear I must have the skinniest legs in America and the bumpiest knees. What am I going to do? How can I possibly go to school looking like this today? Today of all days. Jessica stared at herself in the full-length mirror and saw a picture of utter heartbreak and despair. But what was actually reflected in the glass was about the most adorable, most dazzling 16-year-old girl imaginable. Yet there was no stopping Jessica Wakefield when she was in this mood. And I'll stop there because it honestly has pages about how beautiful they are, spectacular all-American good looks. And um, it's funny, you know, I feel like, did this give us body image issues when we really, Their lives were so perfect, even when they met these terrible bad men who had designs on them. They were always so smart that they could just kind of skip their way out of problems and everything worked out for them. But... It was a winning formula, and I think there are um, dozens more. I sort of grew up eventually, to my mother's great relief, and left them behind, but they just kept being churned out. And they weren't even written by the same person. Each, each odd one is written by one writer, and the even one's by another, but we oh. didn't know that at the time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And made her an absolute fortune, Francine Pascal. I bet. Yeah. 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 They're kind of like lolly books, I think. I, 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 you know, they're so good when you're reading them. They're like addictive, but then afterwards you have trouble remembering which one you were reading. Yeah, they do start <laughs> to seem the same after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And what yes, happens? <laughs> <laughs> 
after the end. <laughs> you have to well, read them. Well, I don't them. know because the books kept coming out. Oh. But it was, all, it was always they were getting into shenanigans and then they, they would, each book seemed to have a different reason why one of them had to impersonate the other, either to get them into trouble or to get them out of trouble. So that was a recurring thing. Mm. And how many people in the room read those as kids? And Look at that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And they were kind of, fu- it was a moment when there were lots of serial books coming out. There was the Babysitter's Club and there was all these other people. Anne M. Martin really took the genre and, and also made a fortune. Yeah. There's still copies floating around school libraries across the world. Yeah. Mm. And I do think that, they didn't do me any harm. You could find a million reasons to object and say, you know, why aren't you reading War and Peace or something? But actually, you know, you've got to read widely. You've mm. got to, and I'm quite grateful that um, I wasn't stopped from reading anything as a kid. So as a, as a young girl in New Zealand, living a New Zealand life, and you're reading these books that are set in America where they go to, they go to, they have like um, diners and things like that. I can remember as a kid reading those sorts of books and th- having to go and find out what those sorts of things were. Did you feel like the cultural stuff was relevant for you? I think just about every book that I read as a child was set in some other country. I mean, I think I Am David starts in Czechoslovakia and... yeah goes through Italy and um, so on. So that just became very normal. And I I think it actually educates children. But obviously it's also nice if you can have some books that are from the country that you're from. Mm. But I just accepted that as normal, that I would pick up a book. And sometimes I wasn't even that aware that it was British or American or something else. A book's a book to book. Mm. How about did you ever find that? Yeah, No, I was going to actually ask you something. So when you gave a little synopsis of that about the dad maybe having an affair and something else, I never, I read those books and I don't remember them being that racy. Like, <laughs> have I got? I, I feel like I've sort of rose-coloured glasses over them, you know, from They're looking so back. Weirdly wholesome. Like, she thinks her dad's having an affair, but it turns out he's just helping the beautiful young woman at his work. To get oh. oh, okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine. And, <laughs> the, and the, the brother's love for the girl from the wrong side of the tracks, but she's a She's a nice girl. Okay, right. Okay. I might have to read it again just to (laughs) brush up on my memories of Sweet Valley. It's so fast paced. It's incredible, yeah. Were you reading Sweet Valley High? (laughs) I would have been run out of town if I (laughs) wasn't. You might have wanted to read Sweet Valley. Actually, no. 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 (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll find there's copies beside your bed quite yeah. soon. <laughs> that's probably the manual for how to be a woman, I think. That's what it sounds like. I don't know. That's a question, isn't it? Do you think they are? Were they a manual for behaviour? I think they did set off some insecurities because, you know, the girls in them had problems like they, I think one of the twins once had a pimple. And, you know, oh, God. How do you cope with it? And, and they kept being much poorer than their rich friend, but to me their life was incredibly mm. wealthy and privileged. So they, they did create some insecurities in me as a reader, but I guess it was also that sort of fantasy escapist read about the life that you'd like to have. Imagine if your life could be as perfect mm. as this. I mean, they live in Sweet Valley, you know. Everything's sweet there. <laughs> 
And and now that you look at that and you think about the novel that you've written, does it make you think that you've been carrying them around? You talked the other day about carrying around these stories in the back of your brain. Do you think you were carrying around Sweet Valley High when you were writing The Girl in the Mirror? Well, there's definitely some uncanny parallels that I didn't notice until uh, well, my cousin, who my mother weirdly gave all the books to after saying that she didn't want us reading them. She gave them to my much younger cousin, who then was addicted to them. Um, my cousin said, oh, so that's why you've got a character called Francine. And my sister and I said, is that why we've got a character called Francine? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of an oversight. So, so the author is Francine Pascal, and we just didn't notice that. But we did deliberately uh, set the book, in, or I deliberately set the book, in a town called Wakefield as a kind of nod to the Wakefield twins. So I took their surname and made it the name of, the town. That's yeah. very cool. <laughs> so you definitely have been carrying them around with you. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not like, I mean, as I say, that these are, I had to buy these for this event because they disappeared and I didn't think about them again for a long time, but, um, but I guess it was like deeply buried in my subconscious. Percolating. Yeah. <laughs> Doing strange things. Oh, that's did, you cool. read them all? did you read them again when you got them? Uh, not only this one, which took about an hour to read. <laughs> yeah. But after I read that one, I felt like, oh, yeah, I know what these are. <laughs> it's almost like a, like a soap opera for teenagers, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And I, honestly, I mean, I know I'm kind of laughing at them, but I think, you know, books are books mm. and good on her. And they are, it is actually a real skill to write a book that captures so many kids' attention and is, you know, I mean, her pacing is incredible. There's, she just gets through all those subplots. She's also built a world, hasn't she? Because that world in those books probably never actually really existed for many, many, for anybody in America at the time. No one's lives are quite that magazine perfect. No, but I guess we believed that that yeah. was how people were living in America. If only we could get there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Hello. <laughs> what are you going to read um, for us? Yeah, when Tell I was, us about this because yeah. there's a lot to unpack in this book. It is. Um, when I was at school, I did a lot of reading and writing. Reading was my go-to submerse myself, uh, submerse myself, immerse myself uh, in a book to, get, to escape my reality, and, um, which is quite not something I wanted. Um, and I've, I've actually written about it in my memoir. It's my <laughs> <laughs> much more eloquently and in depth about my that sort of aspect of it. But um, I sort of when I I used to write and read a lot, and my, I sort of went unnoticed, and I thought I generally went unnoticed, and I was trying to be unnoticed because I was trying to fit in and go under the radar. And I and on the last day of school in primary school in year seven in Australia in Brisbane, my teacher came up and gave me a book, and, that, and that's the book, The Phantom Tollbooth. And it was actually his copy of the book. It's got his name in it. Oh. And I was the only one he gave a book to. And I didn't really think about it too much because, because on the same day that um, it was the breakup day, my mother, every year we used to bring food to this breakup day. And my mother normally made her chocolate rough cake, which was a little slice. And I would go home proudly with a Tupperware container full of uh, empty Tupperware container and take it home and go, wow, my mum's great. And this year she did an um, experimental sponge. <gasps> Oh no! <laughs> if you imagine an experimental sponge in a kid's backpack, in a kid's bag, at thirty-five degree day, oh. and we walk five kilometres to school, 
And by the time lunch came around, it was not a sponge. It was nothing recognisable as food. And so I had to take home this <laughs> container full of slop. <laughs> and um, but I, so I actually didn't really think about this. That was that was more traumatic. I was traumatised by the notion of me having to pick up this Tupperware container full of muck and take it home and say, "Mum, you're a sponge." So um, so I didn't really think about it. when I read it, but. Um, I was, I've always thought it's um, this is like the Bible for wordplay, for puns. If you like words or you know anyone who likes words, this has got every potential pun, everything. The whole story is not only uh, it's a rollicking read about um, a boy who's always bored, a boy called Milo, and when he's at school, he looks out the window and thinks, this is so boring, I wish I was at school, um, at home. The bell rings, he rushes home, gets home and thinks, this is more boring than school. And so, <laughs> so I'm not sure whether he gave it to me because of that. Uh, and um, he gets home one day and there's a, toll, a, pres- uh, a big parcel. He opens it up and there's a toll booth. And he gets in his little car and drives through and he ends up in a magic land of numbers and letters where two kings are fighting. And one is called, um, as is the unabridged, who is the, um, pre- uh, the king of Dictionopolis. And they like words. And um, letters grow on trees and they eat them and... And the other, his brother, is the king, is called, is called the mathematician. And they are owned into maths and numbers. And numbers are dug out of big mines. They have number mines. And, um, and this was just amazing for me it was, as a person, because basically I just thought I was a smart ass. Turns out I'm actually a writer. <laughs> this is the first book that said, you can do this. This is actually being clever with words didn't always necessarily get an eye roll, <laughs> because whenever I did a funny pun, as I thought. Everyone would just go, oh, not you and your puns again. (laughs) Shut up, get to your room. (laughs) This is actually, I just opened this book and from the first moment, first page, you just get into it and it just rolls on with every page is another pun, another another word come to life and it's just the best book ever. And I'm going to read a little bit. Um, I could open randomly, really, and you'd get a, a pun. Can you show the illustration? Oh, this is the 50th anniversary book edition, by the way, um, which I don't do this because I take this to schools nowadays and the kids look at me like I brought the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> go, An ancient text. Don't touch it. Um, so the illustrations are still by this, the original. Um, Jules Pfeiffer did these pencil drawings. And um, Norton Juster died this year, a couple of months ago, mm. and, which is a bit sad. Um, and he's only written, really, he wrote two books in his life, this one and another one, which I've never read. <laughs> but I also discovered the other day that he actually wrote the, the – um, there's a famous film, short film, with a line and a dot, which won an Academy Award in the 60s. And all it is is a line and a dot. And I, watched, I saw it when I was a kid, and I never thought about it. And then I researched and um, found out he had written this – only three things in his life, really. He was an architect, otherwise. So this um, scene I'm going to um, read out is when Milo gets asked to the palace of the king, um, as is the un- unabridged, and they've got a b- banquet coming. Are you ready with the menu, reminded the humbug. Because he met a humbug. His two companions are a humbug <laughs> which is, and, a, and a watchdog, which is a big watch with a, do- a dog with a big watch on its side, <laughs> called Tok. <laughs> Uh, they also, they also, they meet a, a boy who grows down instead of up. They meet the two, a 0.58 boy because every fa- every average family has 2.58 children. So that's, <laughs> that's the 5.8 guy. <laughs> I know. 
I read those things. I tell the kids at school sometimes of these, and they and you either get the ones who are going, this is funny, and the other ones are going. <laughs> They're real dad jokes. I know, totally. <laughs> anyway, well, said Milo, remembering that his mother had always told him to eat lightly when he was a guest. Why don't we have a light meal? A light meal it shall be, shall be roared the bug, waving his arms. The waiters rushed in carrying large serving platters and set them on the table in front of the king. When he lifted the covers, shafts of brilliant coloured light leaped from the plates and bounced around the ceiling, the walls, across the floor and out the windows. Not a very substantial meal, said the humbug, rubbing his eyes, but quite an attractive one. Perhaps you can suggest something a little more filling. The king clapped his hands, the platters were removed, and without thinking, Milo quickly suggested, well, in that case, I think we ought to have a square meal of... A square meal it is, shouted the humbug again. The king clapped his hands once more and the waiters reappeared carrying plates heaped high with steaming squares of all sizes and colours. <laughs> uh, said the spelling bee. There's a spelling bee as well, which is a bee that spells. <laughs> These are awful. No one else seemed to like them very much either and the humbug got one caught in his throat and almost choked. <laughs> Time for the speeches, announced the king as the plates were again removed and everyone looked glum. You first, he commanded, pointing to Milo. Your majesty, ladies and gentlemen, said Sada Milo timidly, I would like to take this opportunity to say that that's quite enough, snapped the king, mustn't talk all day. (laughs) But I'd just begun, objected Milo. Next, bellowed the king. Roast turkey, mashed potatoes, vanilla ice cream, recited the humbug, bouncing up and down quickly. What a strange speech, thought Milo for he'd heard many in the past and knew they were supposed to be long and dull. (laughs) (laughs) Hamburgers, corn on the cob, chocolate pudding, P-U-D-D-I-N-G, said the spelling bee in his turn. Frankfurter, sour pickles, strawberry jam, shouted Officer Schrift from his chair. Since he was taller sitting than standing, he didn't bother to get up. And so down the line it went, with each guest rising briefly, making a short speech and then resuming his place. When everyone had finished, the king rose. Pate de foie gras, soup de l'oignon. Anyone got, a, anyone got a French accent? You see where it goes. Uh, when everyone had finished the king rose, blah, blah, the waiters reappeared immediately carrying heavy hot trays, which they set on the table. Each one contained the exact words spoken by the various guests, and they all began eating immediately with great gusto. Dig in, said the king, poking Milo with his elbow and looking disapprovingly at his plate. I can't say that I think much of your choice. I didn't know that I was going to have to eat my words. <laughs> It's the longest setup for a joke in the history of humanity. (laughs) It's just like. Given that you write children's books, has this been at all influential? (laughs) Slightly. And also, um, also helped choose my wife as well, because she found someone who likes puns as much as I do. (laughs) But if you read it now, you you would love it just as much. It's, it's changed. The love of it is now the, the, the watching how adept he is at weaving um, all these puns and metaphors mm. and similes come alive, and mm. it just goes on. This is just evolves at this most amazing adventure through all these t- – there's a tedium and there's a, all these things you can imagine. Everything you've ever said is in this book as a reality, mm. and it's just amazing. Mm. I'm fascinated by the map in that book. Mm. 
there's a um, Norman Juster insisted that is it Fleischman? I've forgotten his name. Oh. Um, the, the, oh. ma- the man who, he Pfeiffer. was living with the man who who did the map. Yeah, they were both architects, and it's so detailed and so interesting, and it takes you on the journey of the book and fantasy. I was thinking about fantasy and maps and thinking. I always prefer a fantasy with a with a map, and um, and I know lots of teenagers love a map book. And I wonder if the, when you were reading the book, did the map guide your journey? Did you use the map? No, I'm not a very um. I can't. I don't visualise things. Um, so I don't. Didn't really help me to think where they were. Right. Just the words. <laughs> just the words. It's just a the series f- of words. That's so funny. Have, have either of you read it? No, no. But I'm going to have to. <laughs> Quite a an influential book from my childhood, and it's really interesting to hear you describe it because it, I haven't read it again since I was I don't know nine or something. But I would have described it completely differently. Really? Well, probably story of a dog. My memory had <laughs> filtered some out mm-hmm. because it was one of those books. And don't you love it when you read a book and you think that no one else in the world has read this book, and then you discover that actually it's super famous. Mm. And that's what happened to me with that book because I randomly got it from somewhere. And read it and never met anyone else who'd read it. And then suddenly I discovered, I actually have a friend now whose son is called Milo after that book. Mm. So it is incredibly popular, but I obviously wasn't talking to the right people. But I would have described it as, um, it's a book about maths and it's got all this fascinating maths in it. (laughs) It's written in a fictional way. And I I was so confused. I think I, over and over again, I would ponder the he meets a dodecahedron, and mm-hmm. dodecahedron he tells does. him that all dodecahedrons are called dodecahedron. So why aren't all boys called Milo? Oh. And I was so confused by that. I think I, I went around that. You know what? You have those ideas that just keep coming back into your head. I can never solve that one. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, with the time at quarter two, I think. I think that you've probably got lots of questions that you'd like to ask these people. So go for it. Um, There's a roving microphone. We'd like you to wait to ask your question until the microphone gets to you. So one at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody? It's always shy. It's always shy. Oh, here we go. Kyle, um, were there any characters that you look back on and read any female characters that you read as a child that you look back on and went, oh, that that character spoke to me. I connected with that character for reasons that I couldn't understand back then. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I avoided any books with girls in it <laughs> <laughs> for fear of someone might think that I, yeah, just that might happen. So I read um, a lot of Willard Price, you know, um, Amazon Adventure, African Adventure, about two brothers who went off and saved animals. You couldn't get more testosterone filled. I know. I was trying. <laughs> it's not like I wasn't <laughs> trying, people. Yeah, mm, that's interesting. And I mean, even nowadays, you have the um, the whole thing in schools with um, boys not reading books because they've got a slightly pink cover or they've got a thing on the cover which is. Well, there's the whole Maureen Johnson movement, which yeah. is about um, desexualising the covers of books, totally. So that and and authors using um, initials so that people will read. So that anybody will pick them up and read them. Yeah. I mean, a librarian in Auckland um, did an experiment. They got Stacey Gregg books, which is pony books, took the cover off, 
put a new cover on and gave it to boys in the school to read. And they said, yeah, great scoring. Yeah. And then they revealed the cover and it's like, (laughs) (laughs) not going to be seen with that one. Definitely a thing. I know. Yeah. Hi, I think all your books sound fantastic. I might have to go and read them. But they sound fantastic because you have decided what they sound like and and represent in your own minds. How do you feel about um, these books as movies or audio books? Because we read lots of audio books and sometimes the speaker is the, the narrator is the person that puts us off the book i mean in my case um, they made a, in the in the 70s in um, san francisco they made a movie of animated movie half animated half the, the kid from munsters the boy eddie munster was in the, the a boy and then the rest was cartoon and it is the world's worst movie <laughs> i totally confess it it's like, terrible you can't watch more than two minutes of it without no, it's very bad Terrible. Uh, This is a good question for you. Oh, well, I can talk about my audio book, which, I mean, I actually got sent audition tapes for my audio (laughs) book and I got told who they favoured. And um, I rushed over to my sister's house and said, we've got to listen to these together. And the first one we listened to, we just could not believe how brilliant it was. We just felt like our our main character, Iris, had come to life. And this was her. We wanted to go and meet this woman. <laughs> um, and so I just felt incredibly lucky that that audio book just really brought the book to life. And I said to everyone, I'll get the audio book. Um, yeah, but as for screen adaptations, I think that, I mean, they're just one person's interpretation, aren't they? But as soon as a reader picks up a book, they're, they're interpreting it. They're, I mean, look at how Kyle and I took different things mm. from the same book. So I think that's just unavoidable. Yeah, mm. we'll see. How about you, Nalini? Um, I think that's a good answer. I, th- I saw a quote once, and it was that every reader reads a different book. So I think that's so true. And um, I do this thing sometimes where I do a workshop and I go and find one-star reviews of things like Pride and Prejudice. and <laughs> And my favourite one star of that is nothing happens, they just go to each other's houses a lot. <laughs> so um, so I think that shows like we have emotional connection to books and so you'll read it in a different way because you don't have that emotional bond. But you might actually like something in it that we didn't like. So, yeah, yeah I think it's just I listen to a lot on audio too and I understand what you're saying about the narrator. Because the narrator's voice becomes the voice you hear the book in. Particularly if you read a particular series always in audio, it's hard to switch. Or if when they switch narrators. Oh, that's shocking. I'm like, no, it doesn't sound like that. Yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, it is. It is the, it's a different journey for each of us. Yeah. I mean, are you, um, Rose, you've got a movie coming out with your book, haven't you, or not? Didn't you sign up with a... Uh, yeah, well, it's all in progress, oh. but you know what they say in yeah. Hollywood that it's not guaranteed yeah. until the cameras are rolling. So. So I was just, I was just thinking um, when they cast the, you know, if Tom Cruise is suddenly <laughs> your main character, you get the irate <laughs> or you're going to be, you know, how do you, how do you imagine that sort of? Because the people who get, to, you know, the Jack Reacher things, they're irate and they will not watch it because Tom Cruise is like this tall and the guy is supposed to be this tall. Mm. Yeah, I have definitely heard that about those those books that some people feel that way and often a movie comes out and people love the movie except for the people who read the book mm-hmm. who don't like that oh her eyes were the wrong color or mm. you know apparently in game of thrones 
Her eyes are the wrong colour because Amelia Clark can't wear contact lenses, so she could not <laughs> present with purple eyes like she was meant to. Um, so, yeah, you just, it's, it's, you can't always please everyone, but I think you've got to let go, don't you? Especially when it's yep. being adapted by other people. And I mean, you let go anyway because, you know, I've got people reading my book in Macedonia now. There's a Macedonian edition, and I just think, what do they think of it? Like, what? <laughs> I just don't know what they think of it. They, you know, like you say, it's like they're reading a different book. Mm. Yeah. It's funny. I, I once had a um, translator. It was a story another author told, and she said she had written a thriller, and at the start of it, you didn't know who the the, the gender of the the killer. So it was a scene from the killer's point of view and they were murdering someone. But you, you had no clue about who this person was and they got a translator emailing them from a country where um, it has gender assigned to everything, you know, one of those languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the poor translator was like, what do I do? <laughs> and so they had to come up with a solution. So as you said, it, again, it becomes a different book because they had to change that beginning so as not to give away Mm-hmm. the identity of the person who did it. So, yeah, it's interesting things that come up. Yeah. When I think, I think in words and I have a, like a voice in my head. Quite often when I tell people that, they kind of look at me like I'm odd. But um, And when I read Trainspotting, my voice turned into a Scottish, really harsh <laughs> accent for at least a month after I finished reading it, which was quite disturbing. Um, I was just wondering if that kind of happened to you, whether you also have that sort of voice in your head and whether it had ever been affected by any of the books that you've read. Um, I, I have like audiovisual, like I see a movie in my head and I always have. Um, but it doesn't affect my own voice. It's almost like I'm watching the movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, not living the movie, except when it's my movie, like my life. I daydreamed a lot as a kid, and so my movie of my life, I would be involved. But when I'm reading someone else's world, I'm watching the movie and able to hear it and sense it, yeah. Oh, it's like a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, that's why I was never bored as a kid. I was just sit there and be off somewhere else, you know, in my head. That's so cool. <laughs> if only Milo had been able to do that, he would have <laughs> yeah, that's right. to do this. Maybe I wasn't born in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, how about you others? Do you... Yeah, I, I used to put a book down and I would still be living inside the book for a, a, a day or two. I think they call it a book hangover now, but mm. it was much more severe as a kid. I just felt like I was. I was David after I read I Am David probably for a, at least a week. I don't know how I did that because I wasn't travelling across Italy. I was just living in my batch. But it was the, the author's voice took over my brain for quite a long time. So There's a lot of trauma in that book, though. Mm. You know, he's yeah so suffering. I can totally understand why you would get trapped there for a while. Yeah, and mm. yeah, I loved the book. I didn't, mm. I didn't feel traumatised by it. No. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I'm just looking for words, really. I just go through and read it, and then if I get I come away with a nice little phrase or another nice little way of expressing myself. Of course, when I was younger, if I, if I ever mentioned the words, if I tried to use them in public, I'd be looked at strangely. I went once I was, when I was twelve years old, and I went to the uh, lunch at a friend's place, and they gave me takeaways, which was great. We didn't get them, and I went. To, they said, How, "Did you like it?" And I said, oh, I, "It's exquisite." <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
And they looked at me and just went, and they told my parents about it and was like, who is this weird guy? <laughs> just like really a, clever. <laughs> a book reader. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> oh, another question over here. Um, you've said you all read widely still. Do you still read children's books now? And if so, any that stand out that you've read as an adult? For a while I was reading children's books when I first started, but now it's become almost a no-go area because I feel like I don't want to know what anyone else is doing anymore. I'm sort of looking, not looking back. I used to look around going, what's everyone else doing? You know, I'm, I'm part of this thing I need to find out. And, and if I found out someone was doing something I'm doing, then it would be like, okay, I can't do that anymore. So I don't want to abandon my, my pet projects so I don't look just in case someone's got something vaguely similar. So I've homeschooled three children for quite a long time, so I've definitely done a lot of reading children's <laughs> books and young adult books. I think the Philip Pullman books really stood out because they dominated my children's fantasy world for years, which is mark of a really good author. Um, Close at home, Fleur Beale's books, for example, my daughter was utterly obsessed with them, and so you get pulled back into that world. So now I'm kind of taking a break because my kids are, are, you know, a bit older and I don't have to read children's books anymore. It's quite nice to take a break from it. Yeah, even though I love them, it's like I've got to give some time to adult books now. Mm. Um, I don't now, but when I was working at the libraries, we'd be checking in books and I'd just constantly read everything that was coming through. <laughs> so I remember there was this one book and I, I wish I could tell you who it was by because it was beautiful. It was a book about fairies and had little beautiful illustrations and little stories about each of the fairies. And it was a really kid's book, like I would say early primary school age. And um, I used to watch for that book coming through, (laughs) and I'd read it every time it came back. So I actually did, like I said, I will read anything. So I even read the hard, you know, those hard, what are they called? Board books. Board books, yeah. So because some of those board books are amazing. They have like furry things you Mm. can touch and (laughs) and make noises and, yeah, they're good fun. And, um, yeah, so there was a time when I did as an adult read a lot of children's books, but um, no, not at the moment. Right. I've just had the signal. Do we have time for one more or are we, we can do one more question? What will you be when you grow up? <laughs> no one's growing up here. I, I have a question. What are you reading now? What's, what's on, what, what are you going home tonight to read? I've got um, Lil O'Brien's Not That I'd Kiss a Girl. Oh, yes, Not That I'd Kiss a Girl. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's lovely. I haven't read the book, but I've met her. Um, so I actually have just finished Nalini's latest book, which is Quiet in Her Bones, and that was a great book. And then I've just about finished the next book, even though I take a long time to read all her books, because my plane trip here took five hours. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another Kiwi author, Charity Norman, mm-hmm. um, and it is called The Secrets of Strangers. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's good. I read that one too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm reading, uh, I've sort of just started, but it's really good, is um, The Sanatorium. Oh, yes. Is it um, Leslie Pierce, I think, is the author. It's new to me, author, but it's like a gothic thriller set in this um, hotel in Switzerland that, you know, in the mountains and it's snowing and it's used to be a sanatorium and it's got sort of creepy vibes. And Mm, I've just read it. It's going to be a murder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm freezing. I'm reading it and I'm freezing because it's all about the snow and the ice. And it has very creepy moments where hands suddenly appear out of the snow. It's really. And they drag people away, you know, and (laughs) I'm just like, 
maybe not a book to read at night. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I am enjoying it. It was a recommendation, actually. My editor was like, oh, this is a really good book. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Right. We are out of time, sadly, because I feel like we could chat for hours. Um, thank you so much for coming along. Thank, join me in thanking our authors. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.